Hey everybody, Sam Mellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star, and I am grateful for you listening to the 23rd episode of the Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears podcast. The goal, um, always to be worth your time. Uh, this week we'll do that with some fresh thoughts from the Chiefs-Texans season opener after a night of like sleepish. Uh, some questions about sports fandom and baseball's rules changes, and then a conversation with my friend Rachel, the uh, the biggest Chiefs fan you are likely to know, on what, what it felt like to be in attendance for such a fundamentally strange experience. Big thanks to everyone who's new to listening here. Uh, if you're an original listener, I hope you're enjoying the better experience now that we're out from behind the paywall, free and available everywhere. Um, tell a friend, give a rating, a review, but only if you're going five stars, um, right? Four and under, you can take that to Blair's podcast. I'm joking. Uh, anyway, uh, welcome you to check out some of the past episodes, everything from Brett Veach explaining how the Chiefs managed the salary cap, Peter Vermees with the story of being the muscle behind the highest performing Jiffy Lube Bay on the East Coast, and Mike Matheny on faith in baseball. This is all stuff you can't get in other places. I hope we're worth the time, and I hope it inspires you to subscribe to our work. You can get everything we do in sports for $30 for a year. It's the best deal in town. Reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook or email, and I'll send you the link. Okay, um, at the top here, two thoughts from last night's game that I wanted to expand on. Uh, The first is about the pregame ceremonies, uh, the players calling for unity. The second, about the football. Um, Kansas City's getting blasted, you guys. Um, I hate this. I'm a journalist, so I'll cover the story, but I'm also a Kansas Cityan. Um, love this place, love it for all its strengths and through all its faults. And, you know, we're making national headlines right now for the wrong reasons. If you were at the game last night, like I was, you, you might have this frustration that it was a relatively small number of boos. All right, like some were doing the Chiefs thing, others were cheering. Um, that's all true. But some were booing, and, and that's true too. And when you have a platform like this, like a standalone network, broadcast primetime, I assume the most watched live TV show since the Super Bowl, uh, the stakes are raised a bit. I thought it was interesting that after the game, when asked, uh, Andy Reid and the players to a man downplayed the booing. They said they didn't hear it or were too locked in. Uh, Patrick Mahomes did say he saw some of the videos and hoped fans could support them doing what they felt was right, the same as they support the players during the game. Uh, the downplaying is good PR um, on a lot of levels, but the messaging and pleas from the players are going to continue. J.J. Watt heard the boos, and he said it. So did a number of friends I knew in the stands, including Rachel, who you know we'll hear from later. Um, here's what I keep coming back to. I can't offer a guess as to how many people were booing or what each of them would say if you asked them why. Uh, but the fact that enough were booing for the players to hear it, and more to the point for people watching on TV around the country to hear it, That's exactly why the players feel this strongly about their message. Sometimes the counter messaging will focus like on TV ratings, you know, or the idea that players will lose money on this, so they should stop doing it and focus on their sports. Um, Again, to me, at least, like this is making the opposite point intended. The players know that not everyone will accept or agree, right? Um, They know they'll turn some fans off, um, which in turn could drive down revenue and their own personal earnings. Um, That they're still motivated to do this should be as clear a message as possible about how badly they think this is needed. This is a big theme with me now. Um, You probably know this, but I hope we can sort of muzzle out the extremes and focus on the reasonable majority in between. There were far more fans being at least respectful during pregame than not. Uh, We've made a lot of progress with racial equality over the years and decades. 
it's been too slow, taking too long, um, but we are, you know, we're in better shape than when my parents grew up. And I hope we're in better shape still when my kids are raising kids of their own. But, you know, that doesn't mean that we can't get even better. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't, you know, try to get better right now. Uh, doesn't mean we can't work to listen to each other, work together, understand different life experiences. That's what this is all about, to me anyway. Um, and that message is going to come through. I really do believe that. And when it does, I think we're going to remember sports as a big reason why. Okay, anyway, speaking of sports, um, you guys, the Chiefs looked excellent at football last night, right? Um, the, the offense is like plainly ridiculous. You know, this could be like 2018 again, except with a, a better offensive line. Those guys were great last night. Uh, an even more dynamic running back, um, this time one that'll play the whole season, and a, a more experienced and smarter quarterback. Uh, I mean, good grief. The defense showed out too. Um, you know, I know Tyron Matthews said he was, you know, quote, pissed off, end quote, about giving up the two touchdowns late. But, you know, Tyron is far more of a perfectionist about football than I am. And what I saw was a defense that kept a damn good offense to seven points until the score was out of reach. And, you know, they were playing guys out of position and outside corner. Um, they're still not great, great against the run. And I'm still curious to see what would happen when an opponent just commits to the run over and over and over again. You know, both as a way to limit Mahomes' snaps and just as the most effective way to move the ball against the Chiefs. But, you know, you can see how the rest of it can work. The, the pass rush is consistent and varied. The safeties, you know, Matthew and Juan Thornhill, who's returned from the ACL tear, by the way, that is no small thing. Um, but that pair is terrific. Um, now, it's going to be interesting to see how the rest of the secondary holds up. Traverius Ward broke his hand last night. And, you know, depending on how long that takes to heal, the Chiefs could be down their top two corners. And they were short at corner, even at full strength, guys. Um, and they could be down their top two corners for at least three games with Bashar Breeland's suspension. Uh, they're going to have to get creative back there. My guess is that Steve Spagnuolo might try to, you know, help the corners by loading up even more in the pass rush. We'll see. But overall, I mean, goodness, that, that was a hell of a thing the Chiefs did last night. Um, I thought you saw the benefit of a terrific coaching staff and a strong roster that's been together, you know, with playing that cleanly and that well with limited practice and no preseason games. You know, there's a long, 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 long way to go. And, you know, the Chiefs are going to play better teams than the Texans. But it's hard not to think they have a chance to be even better than they were last year, which is just a, a wild thing to say, right? Okay, um, before we move on to the rest of the show, uh, this podcast is now free, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to ask you to join us behind the paywall. Um, you know, as always, we have more independent Chiefs content than anywhere else, including from some of the most experienced reporters on the beat. Um, you know, again, if you're in for $30 for a year of everything we do in sports, uh, hit me up on Twitter or Facebook or email and I'll shoot you the link. Okay, quick break here and then we're back with some questions. If you'd like to participate in next week's show, which we'll post before the Chiefs next game, uh, the road game against the Chargers, please call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. Put the number in your phone, call anytime, 816-234-4365. Okay, quick break and then we're back with those questions. from North Kansas City. You talked this uh, this previous podcast about how being a journalist changes your approach to fandom. I was wondering if you could expand on that a little. How do you personally create the kind of mind space between a healthy discernment 
objectivism and maintaining a sort of fandom. Um, thank you for your time. Well, so <laughs> this is one of the hardest things in the world to explain, um, at least for me. I am paid to explain things and make points with words. And I've tried this one a few times and I'm not sure I've ever nailed it. Um, my wife doesn't understand it, even if that tells you anything. But I read something that Mina Kimes said recently that sort of spoke to me. She was making the point that there is a difference between fandom and homerism, right? That, that fandom is like passion and homerism is the idea that your team can do no wrong. And there's a separation there, right? So uh, like the separation that I feel is sort of a half step beyond that. I'm not rooting for the Chiefs or Royals or sporting or any of the local colleges to win or lose. Um, like I'm rooting for the story, like rooting basically for me. Uh, another way, like, so I was raised as a journalist uh, by some kind of old school guys. Um, but then I've also been pretty heavily influenced, I think, by younger folks. And there used to be a time when sports writers took almost like this pride in being detached. You know what I mean? Like the games happened down there, like below them from the press box. And it was the sports writer's job to deliver the cold analysis. Um, but that's just, that's not me. Like that doesn't sound fun. Um, I like sports because they're fun. So um, then there's been this push more recently of, you know, kind of fan journalism, I guess. Um, and it's people who wear their fandom outwardly, but also do analysis or attend press conferences. And I want to be clear that there are a lot of people who pull this off well. You know, just locally here, I can think of like Seth Kaiser at The Athletic or Steven and Nate and Jake on the Border Patrol where I'm a regular guest. But, you know, that's not exactly me either. So uh, I'm in this sort of weird island of a middle ground sometimes. Um, you know, I feel like infinitely invested in the teams here and, and the people who make them happen, but, you know, also filled with the same indescribable adrenaline to write from my heart and my brain whenever, you know, and it doesn't matter whether that's Sal Perez making the last out of the World Series on a foul pop-up or, you know, Eric Fisher getting called for the hold or, you know, Patrick Mahomes and Tyreek Hill hooking up on Jet Chip Wast. I, I have that same feeling every time to just sort of get the story as right as I possibly can. And I know that's not everybody's approach. Everybody that has my job, I know that's not all of their approach. But when I got into this, I did it knowing that to do my job as well as possible, I was going to have to give some things up. And, um, you know, I don't get a lot of NFL Sundays with friends, for instance. Um, you know, when a local team is going well, I'm missing a lot of fun watch parties. You know, when the Royals win the World Series and the Chiefs win the Super Bowl, my first reaction isn't to, you know, hug my wife or friends. It's, you know, to go through this process that always feels like I'm about to be seen as a fraud, to be honest with you, like just not up to the challenge. Um, you know, it's in that moment, I need to figure out a coherent thought, soak up as much of the real stuff from the locker room or those who live it as possible and, you know, translate it to the page. I mean, I, I swear, like, I don't know if you'll, this will make sense or whatever, but every time I feel like it's the last time anyone will ever care, you know, and I'm incredibly uncomfortable with comparisons that sort of position a writer as knowing what an athlete is feeling, right? I, I just don't think that's realistic. So I rarely do it. But when I hear George Brett talk about how he was terrified of failing every single time that he played a game and that he tried to embrace that fear and learn to use it productively, um, I do feel a certain kinship with that perspective. 
but you know, the same way that I knew I was giving some things up, I also hoped that I'd be gaining some things that I wouldn't be able to experience otherwise. I mean, I, I've been incredibly fortunate to see that happen. I mean, I've, I've been able to watch some of the best games in the country, like coast to coast, college football, NFL, NBA, college basketball, Major League Baseball, soccer. I, I've watched in person as all three of our professional teams won championships. I've watched Usain Bolt win gold in person. I've, I've learned particular points I never would have understood otherwise from, you know, Bill Snyder, Bill Self, Norm Stewart, Andy Reid, Dayton Moore, Alex Gordon, Alex Smith, you know, on and on and on. Um, so again, I'm, I'm not sure if any of this makes sense. What I'm trying to say is like, I, I, I knew I would get give some things up and I hope that I would get some things in return. And um, again, I've been really lucky to, to have that happen. So um, again, I don't know if this explanation to your very legitimate question makes any sense. You know, I can't say for sure that if I had a normal job and listened to the sports columnist in my local paper say what I've just said, uh, I can't say for sure that I'd fully understand it. Um, I hope something in here makes sense. You know, like I said, I'm not better or worse, uh, you know, th this experience of sports. It's not better or worse than a normal person. Um, it's just different. Um, okay, let, let's, we, let's do one more question. That one went a little bit long. Um, uh, now about baseball. G'day, Sam. My name is Branson. I'm calling from Melbourne in Australia. I just wanted to ask for your thoughts on the new rules we've seen trialed in baseball this season. Uh, which ones do you think have worked the best? and which, if any, would you like to see kept for next season? Thanks. I like that Branson has taken advantage of our policy here, where if you call in from another continent, you are automatically included. And I have to tell you, my answer here is different than I would have expected before the season. You know, I knew I'd like the three batter minimum for pitchers. Um, that wasn't a COVID thing, you remember, but so I'm not sure it fits the spirit of your question, but I really do think that it adds to the game. You know, the, the loogies, uh, they may be on their way out and, you know, I'm not trying to push anyone out of a job, but I feel like having to face three batters, I feel like it adds to strategy. It eliminates what sometimes felt like a shortcut to wiping out a team's best hitter in the late innings. And it means fewer mid-inning pitching changes. Um, and I am up for all of this. I hope this rule stays forever. I don't like the seven-inning doubleheader, um, or I guess, you know, more specifically, a way to say it is I don't like it for a season that isn't shrunk and compacted, right, by COVID. And I'm not sure I can articulate exactly why. I just feel like it, it feels weird that some wins require less baseball than others, you know. But this makes me think of Joel Sherman's recent column in the New York Post. Um, he makes an argument for a 174-game season, actually, uh, with the catch being that games would be shortened to eight innings. Normal games um, would be eight innings, and then you'd have 14 double headers, so that's 28 additional games that would be seven innings each. Um, I expected to hate the idea when I clicked the link, to tell you the truth, but I ended up thinking it could work. You know, like quicker games for shorter attention spans, right? More programming for TV networks. Uh, it'd be roughly the same amount of innings and plate appearances for record's sake. And I'm not going to go through all of Joel's points here, but if you're interested, I rec recommend you look up the column. Just search, you know, Joel Sherman, NY Post, 174 games, and, and you'll see it. Um, the universal designated hitter. I like it. But, you know, to be honest, I, I watch so much more American League Baseball than National that this doesn't affect me as much. You know, I, I guess I've always been in this weird place with the DH. I love it in theory. Um, I love that it adds strategy on both sides. It means more players are involved in the games. I love all that in theory. But in practice, it just really makes for a less attractive product when, there, you know, there's just this free out 
coming up every two or three innings, uh, you know, with some very non-hitter trying to lay down the most obvious punt in history. You know, just let the hitters hit. It makes it a more fun thing to watch. Um, the one I'm surprised about, I actually like the runner on second to begin extra innings. Honest got to dig it. Um, had a couple scout friends um, actually before the season started. You know, they obviously watch a ton of, of minor league games. And they told me I changed my mind on this. And <laughs> they're right. I thought it would feel fake and manufactured, you know, like not real baseball. Uh, and I that, that's true, right? But it does add instant action. And I've always kind of thought like the after effects of those 14 or 16 or whatever inning games is just kind of unfair and arbitrary. You know, I wouldn't mind if the 10th started with a runner on first, you know, maybe the 11th with a runner on second, something like that. But either way, this is a rule change that I did not anticipate liking. But, you know, here we are. Uh, okay, uh, that's it for questions this week. A reminder, if you'd like to participate in next week's show, which will be recorded and posted before the Chiefs' next game at the Chargers a week from Sunday, call 816-234-4365. Leave your name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. Um, quick break, and we're back with a conversation about something I think a lot of you probably woke up wondering, which is uh, what the heck was it like to be among the 16,000 or so at Arrowhead last night? My friend Rachel is one of the biggest Chiefs fans I know. I mean, she's actually, she's one of the biggest Chiefs fans possible, if that makes sense. Her dad had season tickets, took her to her first game when she was nine. This was in the 1990s. She's missed a few games since, but only for big things like college graduation or not enough that she'd need two hands to count them. Rachel actually met her husband at an Arrowhead tailgate, totally random. Her family had an extra parking pass. Her dad rolled down the window in the line at the gate and it went from there. Rachel and her husband are now raising their own Chiefs fan. Uh, when they moved away from Kansas City recently, her only demand was they, that they keep going to Arrowhead. This was going to be a problem, right? Coronavirus prices. Uh, Rachel and her husband weren't going to go initially, but uh, then they felt enough FOMO and the prices dropped enough and they did it. Anyway, that's a bit of a long introduction, but I wanted you to know who you're hearing from here. Um, that was a weird thing last night, right? Um, and I know a lot of you are waking up wanting to know what it was like to be there. And of everyone I know who bought a ticket and tailgated and sat through the rain, uh, I thought Rachel would be the best one to tell you what it was like. Uh, so here's the conversation. Um, she and her husband were driving back home when we talked on Friday morning. So there's a little bit of a car noise. But um, anyway, we talked about tailgating, the energy, the weirdness, what she heard during the pregame ceremonies and a lot more. So Anyway, the, the first thing I asked her was just kind of what she felt during the game. Um, I have so many feelings. <laughs> I was thinking yeah. about this last night. So um, I'll start, like, we talked kind of the tailgating was awesome, right? Yeah. So even though it was distanced off, um, it was pretty packed in Lot C where we were. So that was awesome. Felt normal. Music blaring, everything. Going in was a little um, surreal, like... I wasn't really sure what to expect um, just because of the emptiness. It was yeah. a little weird. But then once everything got going, um, I don't know, like, it, you know, the crowd was pretty into it and stuff. So it, I was, you know, I was like, it feels like a game in 2012, like when nobody was there. It was very similar. Um, but, it, you know, compared to last year and stuff, obviously weird. But yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was. Um, I kind of had that same feeling, right? About like the, the parking lot looked like 2012, um, you know, with the yeah. cars and everything. But um, it was pretty loud for 60,000 yeah. people, right? I I agree. Um, and you know, I don't think they used any fake crowd noise. I kind of kept asking if there was, but yeah, it was. It sounded pretty deafening because we were on the lower level uh, where where we normally sit and. I don't know. I, there are quite a few people down there, so it, it was definitely pretty loud. Yeah. Um, it sounds like you, you're, you're glad you went, right? I mean, it was, um, I, I know we had messaged, right, and, and you weren't going to go right. uh, initially. You're, you're glad that the prices dropped and, and you made the decision? Oh, totally. Um, I couldn't have imagined being at home watching, obviously, um, but just going to so many games. I just, this isn't one I wanted to miss. Definitely worth the money. And I was super impressed with how well the Chiefs were prepared um, with the social distancing and the masks. Like, I never felt worried. I don't know. Totally worth the money. Glad I waited, though. Yeah, right. Right. Um, so did you – can I ask you about, like, the stuff before the game? I saw, um, I saw your tweet. What, what did you hear? What did you see? What – in the in the parking lot or during the game? Yeah, the, the pregame with the two, um, you know, the video playing. And, um, mm-hmm. um, the, what, uh, there were just some, con- I don't know, a lot of silence, but a few comments. Um, I don't know if I should say this, but like when Kaepernick was shown on the video, there were some not so nice words coming from behind us. Um, and uh, more so like during the anthem and stuff, people shouting, you know, don't kneel and stuff like that. Um, just some Nothing, I don't know, crazy, but just not nothing unexpected, right? You just yeah. hear it more when it's not so busy. Right, right. I, I know there's, um, you know, the, the cheese thing can sound a little bit like booze. I mean, what, what did you hear there? Did you hear booze? I heard booze, um, but my husband said, you know, he heard both. He heard cheese. I, I probably was a little more fine-tuned to the booing just because it's, I don't know, a sensitive thing. <clears throat> um um, so I heard booze during, and it was during when both teams were on the field. Cause I know there's been some talk, like, you know, the Texans were coming out and stuff like that. And I, I didn't put those two together. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> um, once, once the game starts, um, one, one thing I was always curious about is like one of, uh, <laughs> and it's, you're like the best example that I know of this is that like one of the great things about going to a game is just it's this communal experience. You meet new people, you, you know, high five right. strangers and all that stuff. Like, um, yep. what was that? What was it? Was it just you and your husband in the, you and just yeah. in, in, in the pot or was it, what was that? Um, like? My dad was with me, with us and one of my friends. So we, cause we had four, there were four of us. Um, so all people we knew were with us. And again, we were like two rows closer than where we normally sit. So actually our friends who have an open air suite were behind us because they always sit there. Um, So it kind of lucked out. We were still air high-fiving, you know. Um, (laughs) And of course, like the four of us would high-five. I don't, we kind of just air high-fived other people in front of us and around us and stuff. When when it's going on and you're in this place that you've been so many times and you're you know you're having this experience you've had so many times like it, it, did it feel like did you have these bursts of like normal where you forget about everything that's going on? 
Totally. Yeah. Totally, totally. Um, especially when, gosh, I don't even know. I get chills. I'm getting chills now just thinking about it. Like when they come out, um, when they announce, when the Chiefs run out, like there's that. And then just even, like I said, with the smaller crowd, but I love shouting and yelling when we're on defense, right? That's, yeah. So it is. it was just like you're, this is normal. This is it. We're fine. So, there, yeah, there was a little bit of escape there. Yeah, yeah. Um, getting out was easier, right? Oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we were home by, like, 11, which never happens. Right. Um, they did. It, so we always, like, set up our music and stuff after the game. But I think normally it's, like, an hour and a half, they let you say. But they came around pretty quickly telling us to leave. But, yes, yeah. no traffic. It was amazing. Right. Um, so, I mean, do you think, I know you've got to drive, but, um, do you think you will go to another one or just, you know, is that enough? Yeah, no, we've talked about it. Um, I don't know. I'm curious to see what goes on sale. We obviously, um, we kind of want to go to the Denver game if that opens up. I don't know that we'll go to Oakland or New England at this point, but I think, I mean, obviously we didn't think we were coming here, so maybe ask me in, you know, two days before the game and all that, you know. But we'll definitely, we'd definitely like to go to another one. Okay, so I appreciated being able to talk to Rachel. Um, I'm happy they were able to have fans at the game last night, and obviously no protocols are going to be followed 100%. But from what I could tell, it looked like most were given an, an honest effort, at least, and, you know, a reasonable expectation. And look, I want to be clear here that what I consider a reasonable expectation for people at a football game is far from like a Fauci standard. Um, but I thought a reasonable expectation was met from what I could see. Um, you know, there's no great answers here. I think we all know that. There's a spike in cases in two weeks that could be traced to the game. It will be an objective mistake, a failure. But in my very, very, very non-infectious disease expert opinion, it looked okay. I guess what I keep thinking about is this. If, if fans were not allowed at the game, where would they have watched? Right. Like, I'd like to think that it would have been in safe and small groups or whatever. But I also live in the real world. Uh, I'm glad fans were able to go. Hopefully it went well enough that they can go again. You know, if they haven't spent all their money. OK. Anyway, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening. Uh, I hope we're worth your time. And if I can impose, I hope we're worth subscribing to rating, reviewing. It really helps us get the word out. Thanks, as always, to Randy Mason and Savannah Smith for putting this together. Uh, thanks to Branson and Tyler for calling in. And thanks to Rachel for the time and perspective. Uh, biggest thanks to you all for listening. Let's do it again next week. Have a good weekend. Be kind.